I sit next to my nanai on a cold January morning in her stoic home on the Connecticut River. Warm cups of coffee in hand and a tape recorder nearby, we dive into an intense discussion about her father's memoirs, her childhood, and the future of our family history. Snowy breeze and the dulcet tones of a nearby train accompany our conversation. So here I am with my absolutely lovely Nai Nai, who is one of my favorite people in the entire world and the translator of Melchior's memoirs. And we're just going to have a quick bonus discussion about Melchior and his life and my Nana's life and my Nana's relationship to him and her overall takeaways about the memoirs. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy. If you would like to introduce yourself. My name is Marianne Alverson. My middle name, my maiden name was Melchior, which is the name of Otto Hans Melchior. Yes. So I call her Nai Nai because that is the Chinese word for grandmother and my cousins are half Chinese. And um, yeah, she's very special to me. And she's also the person who translated Melchior's entire works from German to English, which was a massive and substantial feat. And she read these memoirs a lot earlier than I did, which gives her, you know, a unique, fresh perspective outside of my own. Um, so the first question I'm going to ask you, which I'm sure you saw coming, it's pretty simple. Describe your relationship with your father growing up. I think of my father as my savior. Mm -hmm. from my mother, who was a very difficult person. He was very grounded and very loving and um, never critical of me. Um, he was, uh, he certainly disciplined me when I was naughty as a child, but um, he was always there for me. And my mother, who was very um, critical of others, criticized all the time, criticized him, but he never returned those criticisms. He never criticized her. And sometimes I felt he should support me when she beat me, for example. But he always tried to explain to me that she meant well. And she didn't really know what was she doing. She doesn't have control. Meme, he called me Meme, which means little sister in Chinese. Meme, um, you have to understand she can't control herself. This is and so I think he taught me to be very non-judgmental of other people in my life and to not to jump on judgment, but to think about what motivated people and why they were doing things like that. So that was helpful for me in my life. That sounds like a very complex relationship. Did you notice any elements of this kind of, you know, non-confrontational personality in the memoirs? Like, did you feel that the memoirs reflected your relationship with him on a personal level? Oh, it's interesting in the memoirs as I read them, what a, I had no idea that he had such a clever way with people. <laughs> I mean, throughout the memoir, mm -hmm. he, he wins them over mm -hmm. uh, without flattering them, but merely listening to them and, and understanding them. And there are sections of the memoir that he didn't write that I remember he told me stories of. Uh, so he wasn't a vain man. For instance, he did fly German flags over homes in Nanjing so that the Japanese wouldn't bomb the Chinese, his Chinese patriots. 
Um, he did things like that. Um, so he took risks, but um, yeah, he, he was had a good way with people. Yeah. He obviously respected many kinds of people. Well, now that you've dropped that bombshell, can you tell me any of the stories that he didn't include in the memoirs, whichever ones you remember? <clears throat> well, yes, there was another one where they were, they were uh, all sitting in a dining hall, and I don't have this just from my father. I had this from a visitor who came to our house in Bethesda who had been there. He said that um, Hitler had come to China, mm-hmm. and um, everybody was supposed to stand up and salute and my father and one Herr Müller did not stand up and salute. So they actually risked, but they were in China. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't know what risk there was, but he did things like that. Wow, that's, that's really impressive. So you became a prominent character in the second half of these memoirs. <clears throat> what portions of Melchior's story do you remember? Perhaps maybe memories of living in China or any potential contradictions with Melchior's story, any additional information? Well, I was just a child, and he used to ride his, when we were living in Shanghai, he rode his bicycle to work. Mm-hmm. And all through my adult, all through my teenage years, when people asked, what did your father do in China? I said, he sold bicycles. <laughs> and my father heard me say that to my friend, and he said, Mimi, what? You think <laughs> I sold bicycles? And I had just concluded that in my mind. Mm-hmm because that's all I saw him do, cycle to work. So I assumed he sold bicycles. So uh, yes, my memories of Shanghai are very stark of um, beggars on the street, many, many beggars, Uh, often women clutching their babies, um, disfigured men naked in the rain, hoveled in corners. The streets were full of beggars. It was, um, and I held the hand of my not, Ama, who took care of me, my father didn't, my mother, uh, it was, I, they had given me an Ama to take care of me and an Ama for my sister. And I used to hold her hand and we used to rush to her Catholic church. And uh, I would dodge people, people's phlegms and spits on the crowded sidewalks. Then uh, that's the view of a child. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Do you remember growing up in relative luxury in your life in China compared to that when you eventually came to the United States? Like, what were the difference between the two lives? Oh, well, for me, I, we lived on the top floor uh, of a huge apartment building. Mm-hmm. And on that top floor, there was a, a, a roof, a roof, a flat roof. And that's where I played with my tricycle. I <laughs> rode around on the roof. And there was a flagpole on top, and I could climb that flagpole, and my sister, five years older, could not. And it was <laughs> the only thing I could do that she couldn't do, and a I big felt, victory. <laughs> and I went, climbed that flagpole a lot and had a view of the whole city. Uh, so that was my playground. Um, so, yeah. I mean, fair enough, fair enough. So what can you tell us about Melchior's life following the memoir? Well, that was interesting. Um, Melchior's life following the memoir, he, he came to the U.S. We both got our citizenship on the same day mm-hmm. in Rockville, Maryland with mm-hmm. a judge. Can you actually describe that story? Because I love that story. Well, uh, <laughs> all the way to the, to the courthouse, 
they were asking us, they were telling us that we would be asked questions in order to get our citizenship. Mm -hmm. And for me, a young child, I only needed to answer two questions. Who was the first president of the United States and who is the governor of Maryland? And on the whole way, now I came to this country not speaking any English. I was 10 at the time and I spoke English fine, but I, I, I was practicing George Washington. McKeldon, McKeldon was the governor of Maryland. And I kept saying that in the car. When we got to the courthouse, it was quite filled with a lot of people. I was a very shy little girl. And um, if anybody looked at me, I turned red and I felt my face hot, you know, mm -hmm. it was terribly uncomfortable. So uh, finally it was my turn and they asked me, sure enough, who was the president of the United States? And I said, George Washington. And then they asked me, who is the governor of Maryland? And I could not think of McKeldon. Oh, God. I could not. And my face got so hot and I was so nervous. And there was a big desk behind which the judge sat with his robe. And he had a big chair. And he turned his chair and he turned his body and he opened his arms and he signaled me to come to him. Oh. And I ran to him and into his lap. <laughs> held me in his mm. arms. And he told me I could be a citizen. Oh, that's wonderful. So <laughs> it was a very welcoming thing. <laughs> that wouldn't happen today. Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so so what else about Melchior's life following this memoir? Because he cuts off, he's sitting on a beach. Um, it seems like a lovely place. Well, oh, How yes. did he get to that beach? Well, okay, <laughs> let me tell you. He, he, had, he wanted to come to the U.S. because he wanted his daughters to be American citizens mm -hmm. because it was a democracy. And he was very politically very astute, as you'll notice in the yes. memoirs. He knew exactly when to get out of Nanjing. He knew exactly when, you know, he, he was always ahead. And he didn't lose any of his money in the war. He knew where to put it. Mm -hmm. He was politically very, very astute. And he wanted us to live in a democracy. Mm -hmm. And that was very important to him. And so uh, he needed to be a citizen. And so he couldn't work uh, as in the German embassy where they would have been happy to employ him with a good salary mm -hmm. because he was now an American citizen. To find a job as a German in 1949 was not easy. In fact, um, he had a hard time finding work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember for quite a long time, he drove a laundry truck. <laughs> in um, in the Bethesda in Kensington, mm -hmm. which was one of the fanciest neighborhoods of uh, Maryland, mm -hmm. the, in the D.C. area, and he drove that laundry truck. And at Christmas time, he'd come with all these gifts that his customers had given him, because oh, he was very well loved. I think <laughs> in that route, I think. <laughs> anyway, so you know, he he did anything he could to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, my mother nagged him to death to do a job that he hated, and he finally quitted that job. And then, even though it was well paid, he just didn't like selling things. He didn't want to do that. So uh, he finally got a job at the hot shops, where mm -hmm. I also waitressed um, as an auditor. Uh, you know, in a but it, you know it was at least a job. Mm -hmm. But basically, he couldn't wait to retire and leave. Yes. He did not like the cold weather. He never wore a hat or gloves, and he wanted to live in a sunny place. So as soon as he could, he retired and moved to Mallorca, where he, I, he wrote the memoir. Oh, that's fascinating. So he basically went from a gun runner to a laundry truck driver, is yes, what you're yes, saying? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that truly is a story of immigration. Um, could you possibly describe maybe 
how long his life was after he concluded writing these memoirs. Because I think we've talked a little bit about this in the past. He signed off on the memoirs and he said, you know, here I am now. And he obviously didn't give a very in-depth description of your life in America, but he kind of glazed over it. But what happened like after he, you know, um, put the typewriter away, that was the end of his day, and he just, he went (laughs) home. Well, I think the memoirs would have gone on a little longer because there was some good, very good story of how we finally got from China to America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a miracle, uh, but that, that was a very good story, which he did not write about, and I wondered, why did these end? Well, what happened was when he was in Mallorca writing the memoirs and at the point, mm-hmm. he met a woman. Just by accident, <laughs> by accident, her dog came off the leash and started running. He was on a stone staircase. He, he ran to grab her dog for her. He fell and broke his nose, and then she got him to health, and they became an item. And oh, so wow. he fell in love. He fell in love. And for the first time in his life, after a long, unhappy marriage, he had a wonderful relationship with a woman named Yuta. And I got to meet her, um, you know. But mm-hmm. um, So he had five good years with her, and he died at the age of 67 from a heart attack. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that sounds that sounds fascinating. Was he divorced from Mushka at this time or No, no. No. In fact, she she tried to uh um she offered to live with the two of them because she thought it was so nice what he had found. She she <laughs> she, she, she she was always my mother always wanted what everybody else had. It was very sad. Very mm. sad really in the end. I see. So, let's talk a little bit about, about Mushka now that you brought her up. What were her beliefs regarding Melchior's, you know, life and Melchior's career as a gunrunner? She obviously met him through his connections. Um, <laughs> and furthermore, kind of what were her beliefs on, you know, Hitler's rise in Germany and the rise of communism? And we'll just start there and then we can dive into your memories of her. Well, my mother was not politically astute and pretty much when I knew her in Bethesda, she always asked my father whom to vote for. And because he read books constantly, he read nonfiction, he read books by Fulbright or by the senators or anybody, he would read political books all the time. And she did not, so she she always went by what he said. And I think she did that because she had been wrong in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I only found out later through many, many letters because Mm -hmm. I was not told the truth. Um, As many Germans do, of that generation, they try to hide anything. But she didn't try to hide. I actually think she, you, you forget things that were uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's clear from the letters that I read that um, throughout the beginning of the rise of Hitler, she, yeah. was, she was all for him. Mm-hmm. Until 1941, Germany was winning in 1941. Yes. And um, I remember one line in my mother's uh, letters that gave me the shivers. Um, England is der eigentliche Feind. Mm-hmm. England is our true enemy. And that was a key to me understanding why my mother supported Hitler. Mm-hmm. They had been traveling to China back and forth from Germany and seen all these British flags in the, uh, on the trip because Britain was such a successful imperial power. And the Germans thought, well, they were better than the British. Why should the British have their flags all over the place? The Germans should have their flags all over the Mm -hmm. place. So they were, um, so she thought too that uh, Germany was superior to the British. Mm -hmm. 
And um, of course, that was, uh, I, th I think that she, she didn't live in Germany, but I think until through 41, from her letters, it seemed that she was in favor of what they were doing. Yeah. Of course, after 40, I'm, all the 42 letters were missing, but in 43, I read that she was anti-Hitler, but that's because her brother-in-law was killed, her brother was killed, mm -hmm. so family members were already killed in the Nazi fight, and mm -hmm. also they were losing, and then she said in her, when she was living with me, she always said, I was against Schittler, she mm. called him, and she hated Hitler. But um, she must have forgotten or kept from me those early years when she supported it. Now, my father never did. Mm -hmm. She tried to get them to move from China back to Germany in some of those letters I read where her father was. She tried to get my father to move the family back to Germany. Mm -hmm. And my father absolutely refused, thank God. Yeah, so do you know of any conflict this created between Melchior and Mushka? Because, you know... I feel like you kind of see the early um, on stages of their relationship where it's kind of in the honeymoon phase and then he kind of, you know, glazes over some of the rest of this. Do you know anything about that, you know, the discrepancies between their two beliefs and whether that caused some conflict? Or? I don't think it was a belief thing. Uh, unfortunately, I found some diaries of my mother's, which <laughs> I read. Uh, my mother was a pack rat and kept all her old letters and all her old diaries, so I discovered much too much that I shouldn't have known about. <laughs> and I'm afraid that um, she was never faithful to my father from the get-go. And I think that they even separated in their honeymoon. And um, I think they had a terrible marriage. Oh, wow. And I, really, I also noticed in the, in the diaries something nobody ever talked about, my sister. Nobody knows but me now. Because um, my sister had died, I would have told her. Um, they, uh, my father was actually planning on leaving my mother uh, at one point, um, and then she was uh, she got jealous of some some situation with my father, so she ran to him, and they they had um, they they got together for a short time, and then um, you know I was conceived. Oh. And when I was conceived, my father said he would never leave my mother because mm. she had two daughters and he would never. He, and he, was, he never criticized her in my... Mm -hmm. uh, he, he supported her and she was the breadwinner of our family when we came back here from China. Yeah, so can you actually talk about Mushka's you know, the rest of Mushka's life once she came to the United States? Because, I mean, you talk about how your father became... Um, a laundry truck driver, but yes. I think Mushka, there's been some significant family lore about Mushka and what she did once she got to the United States, if you'd like to dive into that. <laughs> well, you mean which part? You mean... The when... Library of Congress job. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, Mushka, she, she was very, um, very good at getting good jobs. Um, she left us in 1947. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they discovered that she was an American citizen. They had no idea. She was born in Buffalo, New York for one year. And they, then the, her parents moved back to Germany, but they didn't know. Some neighbor in Shanghai told them, hey, you're an American citizen if you were born in Buffalo. So she got her passport and left for the U.S. and hoping that she could get her husband and two children into America. Mm -hmm. And that she, so her first job was in Philadelphia at the Hanuman Medical School, and um, she, she was very good at 
languages. She worked hard to learn Chinese and Russian, and uh, Russian was a favorite language of her father's, and she mm-hmm. learned Russian. And um, I'm sure her father thought it would be great if, if Germany could conquer Russia, because he loved Russia so much. <laughs> so, and that's where their, their, her brother died in yes. Russia. She shot in Russia. So, um, no, she was very employable, and um, the story was that uh, she was supposed to get us, the rest of us, in, and none of the lawyers in Philadelphia could help her. Mm -hmm. Um, You had to prove that you weren't a Nazi, or you had to prove that, because unless you had a lot of money, Nazis could pay to get into the U.S., but non-Nazis would have to prove that they weren't, I mean, if you weren't rich. And so, or if you weren't good for the military, one mm-hmm. of her cousins got in who was a Nazi, but he was really good for the American military. He had yeah. mil- those skills. So uh, in the end, she went to D.C. She found a lawyer. She got a good job in D.C. working for the Beach Erosion Board. And then uh, that lawyer told her, can't you prove that your husband was never a Nazi? And then she remembered, do you remember in the memoir, my father was in a, in a prison in Hong Kong. Yes. And in that prison in Hong Kong, they sorted out those who were, those who were Nazis and those who were not Nazis. And the mm-hmm. Nazis met a very bad fate, but the <laughs> non-Nazis were let go. My father was one of them, and he remembered one of the British soldiers he had conversations with. Mm-hmm. And my mother remembered that soldier's name. The lawyer contacted him, and that was proof that my father wasn't a Nazi. That's great. And that's how we got in. And then after the Beach and Rosen Board, when we got there, she got a job at the Library of Congress where she worked the rest of her life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, a, um, as a research analyst looking, reading Chinese and Russian newspapers. It was very secret. Uh, I couldn't go to her office. Um, she would do reports for the Senate, you know, like if they wanted to know what was going on in Russia, read the Russian papers and see what they say about this. And so she would do that and write a report. Yes. It was hard work. I mean, you know, in the weekends, she would sit with Chinese characters because she had to keep learning more Chinese characters. That's impressive. So she was quadrilingual? Is there even a word for that? She was multilingual. (laughs) She was multilingual. But all of us joke that she really didn't know any language very well. (laughs) But she had a lot of chutzpah and she worked hard. Okay. So this is a really fascinating glimpse at Mushka and Melchior's you know, existence in the United States and kind of the rest of their lives. And I'm going to kind of move on to some more profound questions about just you and your life and how it relates to your fathers. So you are very much a pacifist. Most infamously, you told me as a child, the story of you being arrested for your own participation in an anti-apartheid protest, which is a story that's really cool. And Mayeya, um, your husband, followed communist ideology pretty closely to the point where he had, you know, an encounter with the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Oh, no, that wasn't communism. Oh, okay. Well, you can tell me that story in a second, but do you think that your father would have approved of this behavior? Absolutely. 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 Well, maybe tell us, tell me where I'm wrong about the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Oh, you're very wrong about that. And then dive in to... Meet your father. And okay, you you're think? very wrong about Hoyt. Hoyt, my gosh. But when I met him, he said, I have something to tell you. He thought it would be a secret, you know, that I would... And he said, I was called before the House American Activities. You know, he thought I would see, think less of him. I thought more of him. <laughs> uh, and, and then he said it was because he had sat to integrate um, uh, the counters. 
You see, oh, he was really? we were working for integration at mm-hmm. the time. It was illegal to eat together uh, at counters. And so he would go with his group at GW and sit there, and they got arrested. And uh, or they got kicked out or something. And the House American Activities set, called all those kids from GW that Hoyt was in a group in, in, because they were illegally trying to integrate mm-hmm. lunch counters. Yeah. It was a terrible time. That's, and and, that's, and that's what it was. It wasn't communism, but it was Hoyt's father, who was a, a true Archie Bunker, uh, <laughs> would call that communism. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. I see. So, so that's fascinating. I didn't know those two stories were connected. And so kind of diving back into it, why do you think your father would have? Because obviously, you know, your father was very much a rebel and independent thinker, but he was also very, you know, uh, at least it seemed a little bit. Um, he, he did endorse war on some, on on some levels, whether they be commercial or financial. And I do think you told me a story. I don't know if it would go on the record. Um, but you told me a story about integration within your own community when you were younger. So maybe. Oh, that was different. that. That was okay. Okay. You call him a gun runner. I, I've never thought of him as a gun runner actually. Mm -hmm. Um, of course he did sell guns. He was a businessman. Mm-hmm. I would say he was a businessman. Yes. And he did what he needed to do to earn money. Mm-hmm. And he worked for an import-export firm. And he didn't just import guns. He imported um, equipment, as you saw, you know, mm-hmm. telescopes and all kinds of stuff, not just mm-hmm. guns. So he did anything he could to earn money. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that uh, it's true that... He, and he was... he turned out to be extremely liberal in his views. Mm-hmm. He always voted, uh, he, he was a staunch Adlai Stevenson supporter. Mm-hmm. He was um, pretty much um, an intellect, uh, I think, even though he was self-taught. Yes. He read a lot. So um, he became quite liberal. Now, yes, um, in terms of integration, he, we lived in Bethesda. Mm-hmm. He had put all his money into us living in that house. Yes. And this was where I adored my father. There was nothing he could do wrong. But mm-hmm. like all children, I found out his, I found, I, I got terribly devastated by one thing I witnessed. Mm-hmm. And that was, but I do think it wasn't that he was against integration. He was worried about his pocketbook. Yes. He was worried about the money because we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot. Yes. And um, so, uh they came by in our neighborhood in Bethesda because a black family wanted to build, buy a house in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. And they came around and asked people in the neighborhood, would you mind if a black family moved in? Can mm-hmm. you believe that? Yeah, but that's true. And, um, and I was near the door when I heard my father at the door. Mm-hmm. And, he said, and she said, the woman said, well, you know, your property, I'd like you to sign this piece of paper to say you're against these people moving in you know, our property values will go down. Mm-hmm. And so he signed it. Yeah. And that was the end of it. I was so upset. And uh, it, 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 it's something I've never forgotten. And, you know, and when we talked about it, he said, I'm not against them. I'm against, I just don't want to lose my money. So, I mean. But I thought it was terrible. Yeah, that's a fascinating story because I think, and at least this was my perception and my takeaway from his stories without ever having known him on a personal level, was that he did have, you know, fairly 
liberal democratic ideology, but when it came to money versus activism, it, he was going to look at the finances more closely. Uh, that was at least my perception. And I noticed that, you know, when I kind of looked into the history of a lot of the things he mentioned in his memoirs, for instance, uh, you know, the Chinese warlord who was hosting extra extravagant parties while um, the conditions for the rest of the country, you know, were kind of crumbling. Um, and the fact that he uh, continued to deal, I mean, other things, but in addition, weaponry, which helped fuel his um, reign of, I mean, I think it's fair to call it oppression, at least in history's eyes. So I, this is an interesting story to me because I think it kind of demonstrates a pattern in his behavior where I can see where his ideology is very strong. His actions can be disconnected from that ideology. I think that's brilliant because I think you've got it. And I think, in effect, it was your analysis which made me think about it. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't really thought about it because, you know, I was just his daughter and, 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 and seeing him as a great, great father figure, which he always was for me. But it's clear, if you, if you think back, um, he, he talks about in the early years how family lost all their money in the First World War. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then you noticed in China, he was so clever Mm -hmm. not losing his money when most of the journals Germans lost their money. Yes. He took all his money out of the German banks and put them in Sweden <laughs> and Switzerland. In fact, he put all that money in the Swiss account under a Chinese name mm -hmm. with a Chinese friend and trusted that friend to give him his money back, which mm -hmm. the friend did. I mean, it shows something about his relationship with people. And then it shows something about how, how he protective he was of his money. Yeah. And, and I think that's true. And I think um, it's, it, it's a problem. Every, even today, you see people may have liberal views, but mm -hmm. when it comes to their pocketbook, you're, you're, you're wondering whether, what they will do. Yeah. And what, which, so, yeah, I, that was... See, this is kind of where the root of this question came for me. Because I, I mean, looking back at you and Yeya's history, and I know a decent amount of it because obviously we sit around the table and tell stories. I feel like you're both the kind of people who put activism oftentimes before the money. I mean, when you got arrested, you knew there was a significant chance that, you know, you wouldn't be able to hold a job again. It would astronomically affect the rest of your life. It's, you know, it could go on your permanent record and you... It is on my permanent record. It is on your permanent record. And you made that choice knowing it could put your finances at stake. And, you know, well, Yeya made a very similar choice when he chose to sit at the lunch counters and be pulled um, and be called out by the House of Un-American Activities Committee because, I mean, obviously that committee was absolutely slaughtering people's careers and he was, you know, a young prospective GW student who came from, you know, not that great of a background. And so how do you think your dad would have reacted to these situations where you chose the activism before your own personal benefit? Would he have called that, you know, stupid and a waste of your prospects or and encouraged you to follow in a route such as that which he did? Or would he be proud of you for doing what he, you know, never really could? Okay, two points. One, 
in terms of his reaction to me, I think he would be happy with whatever I decided. Mm -hmm. The one thing why he was such a wonderful parent is he never tried to tell me what to do. Yes. I was a free person at home. Mm -hmm. In fact, my mother didn't care about me, so, you know, she didn't even know what I was doing. And he knew what I was doing, but he thought anything I did was fine. And I did some pretty stupid things, and he never said, that's stupid. He let me learn myself. Mm -hmm. And so he was, I mean, I had so much freedom, if I think about it, compared to Hoyt, who was constantly told what to do and how to do it and what was moral and what was immoral. I mean, he, my father really trusted me to come up with my own uh, rational mm -hmm. um, moral decisions. The second point is there was a time in, my, in our time together when Hoyt wanted to burn his draft card at Yale. Mm -hmm. He was a graduate student. We had a baby. We were living very on a very tight budget. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievably tight. Um, in a place where I had already been attacked and we'd already had a burglar in our, in our house because we were living in a bad neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It was a tough life, but he was working to get his graduate degree and we figured we would have a good life after that. And he mm -hmm. was there with Sloan, uh, you know, the at Yale, yeah. trying to, Sloan Coffin, trying to burn his draft card. Yes. Well, I put my baby in a stroller, and I rushed to that fire where they were throwing the, burn, <laughs> the cards in. Yeah. And I literally stopped him. Mm -hmm. And I said, you can't do this. Mm -hmm. You have a wife and a baby, and you <laughs> cannot go to prison, mm -hmm. and I will not allow this. Mm -hmm. And I was very forceful. Mm -hmm. And he minded me. Yeah. So you see, there are times where yeah. you make those decisions. We all make those decisions. That's, because I didn't think it would do any good for him to end up in prison. That's, that's a fascinating story. That gives us a lot of insight. I, I really, you know, it's, it's really admirable that you, <laughs> I gave you a very intense compliment to your activism. And I think you recognize that, you know, I think we all eventually make those decisions. Yeah. And putting your baby first is obviously like a very evolutionary instinct so <laughs> so I have another question because obviously you said your father would approve of all of your decisions and he was obviously a very positive figure in your life and this is just out of vain curiosity after having read and analyzed and dissected every little sentence of these memoirs would your father and I get along oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> um basically you're a avid reader mm-hmm you read, and you are a good thinker. Mm. And there's nothing he liked more than to talk to someone and listen to someone who's been well-read and has ideas and mm. likes to dissect things. Mm. And he doesn't mind disagreeing at all. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think he would have loved, I mean, of, probably of all the grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think he, it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, so I have another question, and I think we've kind of brushed up upon this a little bit throughout the rest of our, you know, kind of discussion together today. But you've often discussed how your father was a revered figure of your childhood. We did just now. Did his memoirs change your opinions of him? And kind of as a follow-up question, since you obviously read his memoirs long before I ever produced my podcast or even looked at them, um... Did my historical juxtaposition of his memoirs change your initial perceptions about his life and his story? 
Oh, your podcast certainly made me think about things I had not thought about. Mm-hmm. How how easily he was a um, an expatriate, mm-hmm. living that cushy lifestyle, playing tennis and riding donkeys through the uh, Chinese landscape, mm-hmm. when clearly there was plenty of poverty all around him, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it's like we walking on the Shanghai sidewalk, seeing all those beggars. Mm-hmm. People weren't aware of it. They just walked right by them. Mm-hmm. No wonder Mao Zedong succeeded. Yeah. I mean, the expatriate community didn't care, mm-hmm. didn't seem to care. I, I, yes, you made me think about how, how much of China he just... Uh, like many expatriates everywhere, mm-hmm. they lead a very cushy lifestyle. He had servants. He had, uh, you know, he he furthered his career there mm-hmm. at the expense, I'm sure, even though he supported his Chinese patriots mm-hmm. and and maybe helped many Chinese in the business community who were businessmen. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, and even though he was a liberal, he mm-hmm. he didn't look at what he needed to do. Yeah. So I think, yes, you made me mm-hmm. see that, and I'm sorry he's not alive, and we could have a good discussion <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's really interesting to hear. As for your initial read of his memoirs, before I ever came in with my two cents and my historical blah, 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 um, what were your initial perspectives on the memoirs? Do you think they were, you know, an accurate reflection of his story? Had you never heard his story before? Um, he, he directed the entire memoir to you, which is essentially why I ask this question. Um, so, so what were your initial perspectives on this? Well, he told good stories at home. And that's why when he went to retire, I begged him to write all of it down Mm -hmm. because he was a good storyteller. But he was also a very truthful person, Mm -hmm. much more so than I am. Mm -hmm. I mean, he that's the one thing he did say to me, that truth was so important and that I should not lie. And when I was a child and I tried to deceive them, like I said, I didn't do this and I did do this, Mm -hmm. he really sat me down. He did not like that. Yeah. And so I do think that his memoir is very accurate and honest. Yeah. And I don't think he tried to hide that he sold guns or whatever mm-hmm. he did. I mean, I, I that is something I really respect about him. Yeah. And I can't say that I've been, every time I tell a lie or do something deceitful, I sort of think, <laughs> uh-oh, he wouldn't like this. <laughs> you know, but I, yeah. he, he led a very honest life. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what made his memoirs so brilliant was that the proof was in the pudding i mean you you went on to the historical databases and luckily thanks to haverford college i have like an infinite wealth of historical databases at my fingertips but you know you could type in a name and you might find a few misspellings or differences in phonetics but you definitely wouldn't notice any you know abrupt you know like sways from the truth it was it was very obviously in line with everything that happened and that because of that you could fact check it so easily none of it was exaggerated and you could definitely see that he was portraying all of it without you know a sense for is this going to make me look bad is this going to make me you know be seen a certain way but i also think that a lot of this might have been that he thought just you were going to read it he definitely said very explicitly at the beginning please do not publish this don't put this anywhere. This is just for you. Did he honestly mean that? Like, no. do you think he would be affronted by this invasion into his little 
world of privacy? Not at all. Not mm-hmm. at all. Because he talked about these things. I think that he said that initially because he doesn't want you to expect to have a good read. He's mm-hmm. not a writer. Mm-hmm. He's never written anything in his life. You know, and he, I mean, I was amazed. I had no idea he could write so well. Mm-hmm. There were no, he typed every day. There were no chapters. There was nothing. He just picked up the typewriter every day and typed. And mm-hmm. um, it was, it, 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 there were no mistakes. I mean, there were hardly any erasures. Mm-hmm. I, and, and his memory, I had no idea yeah. that he could do that. Yeah. So when I asked him to do those memoirs, I didn't expect this. Mm-hmm. And um, no, I don't, he wasn't a vain, that's one thing. He jokes about him being vain when he was a kid, when he was in Hamburg with the new clothes after he got his job and he talks yeah. about, and he laughs at himself. Mm-hmm. And he also talks about his um, right wing uh, activities as a, yes. in the First World War. I mean, he, he, he wasn't a vain person. Yes. He was perfectly happy to show you his negative sides. Mm-hmm. So... Given all of this information, and I understand that this is like a very heavily loaded question, and you can just say no, next question. Would you perhaps, when my children or your great-great-grandchildren read these memoirs, want them to remember Melchior as a hero? No. 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 I don't see him as a hero. Mm-hmm. I see him with an interesting life through two war wars um, who... Um, describes a lot of history mm-hmm. in a pretty accurate way. Yes. And um, I think it's a, it's a good read. Yeah. It's a good read. <laughs> and, and I'd like them to enjoy his writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I don't think he was a hero mm-hmm. in any way. He made clever decisions for his family, mm-hmm. not losing the money, getting out of China, getting out of Nanjing in time. Imagine if they'd stayed in Nanjing, they would have mm-hmm. died. Uh, getting out of, you know, so, no, no, he wasn't a hero. He was just a a man who who took initiative, Mm -hmm. certainly, and had a sense of adventure Mm -hmm. and a sense of humor and, um, you know, lived an interesting life. Lived an eventful life. So my final question, it's less of a question than a request. Would you ever consider writing a memoir about your life for my future children to read? Oh, I, I don't. I, I doubt it because my life isn't that interesting. Oh, okay. That's bullshit. I'm, I'm telling all of the listeners to this podcast that that's objective bullshit. And I think, <laughs> I think hopefully they will convince you too because my nan and I had a fascinating life and you were an immigrant to America and lived through some of the most fascinating portions of American history and you were an activist and you lived in you even wrote a whole book about living in Botswana in the wilderness so they can read that (laughs) (laughs) but that only gives them a fraction a small window into your life and I think what's so beautiful about Melchior's memoirs and I think we all agreed that we wish he hadn't stopped telling the story where he did what was so fascinating about his memoirs was that you got to see him grow up throughout all of these eras. Like normally when you think about a person in the past tense and you think about their life, you look at it in kind of like chunks of various stories they might've told you, or, you know, for instance, books that they wrote. Um, But you're not able to look at it with like a linear pattern and kind of see how they evolved and what their reflection is, you know, um, 
in older age, see what their reflection is on all of the things they did. And I think that was what made Melchior's life so fascinating. And while Melchior probably sat down and at the beginning of his, you know, his, uh, essentially his book, he said, you know, this is going to be a boring read. I'm not a writer. It's kind of mundane. This yeah. topic is boring. He thought the same thing as you. He was like, well, this is just my life. How could my life be fascinating? But what he neglected to recognize is that while he was living all of these moments in the present, we're looking at it like history, an important history. And none of us could ever go back in time and be in his body for these events. Just like I, for instance, couldn't be in your body while you were protesting apartheid or going to Botswana or, you know, getting your citizenship or escaping China. I could never be in your body for those events. And so it's incredibly exciting for me because I can look at history. So I don't know. I just want you to consider that potentially, maybe as a future Christmas gift. Well, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to translate these memoirs. Mm-hmm. And it was only because my daughter-in-law um, has a Chinese is Chinese and has a fa- father who wanted to know what my father did in China, mm-hmm. and she just begged and begged me. Finally, one day I got up and I tried. And once <laughs> I got into it, I had a good time. Mm-hmm. And I do love to write. Yes, but um, I don't know. I, I I don't think I have that much to say. But I there are some good memories and t- interesting memories in terms of women's lib. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that I think is a good story to tell. Yes, um, what we went through in those days mm-hmm. when there was, we lived in Connecticut and you, birth control and abortion was all illegal, mm-hmm. and what we went through, mm-hmm. and uh, what's happening today. You know, it's 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 um, very painful to see what's happening today if you've lived through those times. Mm-hmm. That's so maybe it would be worth writing those things up. That's fascinating. Sounds like there are more stories to tell. So I would like to thank you, Nainai, for sitting with me on this lovely morning. (laughs) It is bright and early. We've got our cups of coffee. We're looking at the absolutely gorgeous river. You probably heard a train go by throughout the beginning of that podcast. Um, And I would like to thank you for having me here today and letting me in on this, you know, important portion of your life and your relationships with your father. Um, And thank you for translating these memoirs. Without you, this project could never have gotten off the ground. So thank you. And thank you. (laughs) Okay. Well, we will see you. Um, Please make sure to check out the rest of the installments if you haven't already. Um, And have an amazing day.